Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this episode of the Happy at Work podcast. We are so excited to have with us today Hap Klopp, who is the uh, original co-founder of North Face, served as CEO for 20 years. Hap is also right now active as an advisor, a consultant, an investor in a number of different companies doing work in the environment, preventive healthcare, as well as looking at the future of education. And he's a professor at UC Berkeley and Holt International Business School. We are we have so much to talk about today. Hap, welcome to the Happy at Work podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. So let's just, I don't know where to start, but can you maybe talk about a, a particularly important part of your career journey as the co-founder of North Face and Having run that company, which is such an amazing brand, uh, we all know. So tell us a little bit about how did you find that company and and run it so well? Well, I think a lot of that actually came from the background of where where I grew up and what I did. And I developed a lot of idiosyncratic ideas. Uh, I didn't realize they're idiosyncratic at the time, but I was raised in Spokane, Washington, and always involved in outdoor activities because that's what you do in Spokane. And so I kind of knew what a good product was going to be. But also I'd come back with a great feeling about being a steward of the earth, which I thought was very important. And I also felt really energized when I was out there. And and so it was something I just put in my own data bank of, of something. I coupled that with the fact that I was very lucky uh, to have an education, which was quite different from uh, most of the people in my uh, peer group, uh, went from the fifth to the eighth grade on, they had me stop studying at uh, noon and allowed me to either play sports in the afternoon, run a school store with one of my best friends, uh, still one of my best friends here with me now. And uh, But at the same time, they had me read directed reading. And I was reading Thoreau, Hegel, Marx, uh, all of those people. I didn't understand a lot of it, but I did develop some philosophies. And one of those which really resonated was uh, in Thoreau, he said, you know, in wilderness is the preservation of the earth. And that sort of resonated with what I saw in, in the world outside. But also the, the teachers made me feel it was okay. Uh, I, I didn't realize it was just because I was disruptive that they asked me to do that. But, you know, I thought... They made me feel like I was a good student or something. And as a result of that, it was okay to be you know, out of step with the other people. And then I coupled it with the third thing, which was I had the good fortune. My family had a wood products company and I had the good fortune to uh, to work at all jobs. I wanted to work at, I didn't want to just be the boss's son. So I worked at all the laboring jobs and I worked around a lot of people who frankly weren't as educated as I was, even though I was in high school, uh, but they were incredibly good at problem solving and whatever. And I, I learned to respect them. And there were many women who'd worked there during the Second World War that were doing men's jobs and they were doing as well or better than men. 
Yet at this time, women were paid half of what men were paid. And and as I found that, you know, people were coming from all over the world. They spoke other languages. They weren't as educated. But I really learned a, a respect for people that, you know, the best people were not defined by their sexual persuasion and not designed by you know, their language capability, not designed by their education necessarily. And all of those kind of came together as I was developing. And I, I went to Stanford as an undergraduate. And while I was there, uh, you know, I, I had the, the unfortunate thing, my father died. And so I was charged with running our family company, which was uh, 900 miles from Stanford. And so I was going back and forth my senior year, running the company, uh, trying to finish my degree. And, and the one thing I was good at, which was drinking beer, I did that fairly well. But, you know, it was a challenge and I didn't exactly know what I was doing, but that was my challenge. I concluded during that year that we weren't going to be big enough to compete against the uh, warehouser. Boise Cascade, uh, Anderson Window Wall, and others. And, and to succeed, what we're going to have to do is I was going to have to raise tens of millions of dollars. I was going to have to move the plant closer to where Timber was. And we didn't have a brand, so we're going to have to develop a brand. And then on top of that, I was going to have to fire most of the management because they really weren't in step with the times. That was fairly daunting for somebody in their early 20s. And so I, I took the wimp's way out. And what I did is I decided maybe what I should do is try to sell the company. And so simultaneously, I applied to uh, go to the business school. I got into the business school and now I had four jobs, you know, uh, getting my MBA, running the company, selling the company, drinking beer. And uh, and by the way, I, and I got married too, just to add to the thing. So uh, a lot of challenges. I, I sold the company at the end of the first year. And at that point, I was expecting somebody to asked me to run their company. I mean, come on, I have this prestigious MBA and I'd run a company. And But of course, nobody offered me that job. So I interviewed with a variety of, of people, particularly CPG companies, because I thought I had a flair for sales and marketing. And But when I went out, it, it didn't work very well because all of these idiosyncratic ideas I had really didn't work. You know, they, that wasn't what I was seeing in the marketplace, but but not, I figured, well, maybe I could work for them and on the side, find a side hustle that I finally go into. I didn't feel very good about that because it felt a little disingenuous to only give 60% to your job and do that. But I went out and interviewed and well, I had this uh, uh, interview, which kind of concluded for me what I needed to do. And that was with Procter and Gamble. And, uh, you know, they, they give you this eight hour interview where you hour each with eight people and they decide whether you fit and you decide uh, the same. And, and, you know, I wasn't feeling particularly good. I mean, there's an old joke about Cincinnati. I mean, here I was going from having four jobs, being in Silicon Valley, which even at that time was pretty active, and going to sleepy Cincinnati. And and the joke is, you know, if I were to die, I want to die in Cincinnati because everything happens two years later there. It, and, you know, and there was that, and I had the disconnect because I believed in a product that lasted. I mean, when you went to the outdoors, your product had to last. If it didn't, you could die. And, uh, you know, the idea of planned obsolescence and, and Procter & Gamble is totally based on planned obsolescence. Get rid of it quickly so we can sell more. So anyway, I interview with them in the, the first hour is with the HR department. And they asked me the question of, you know, you know, what's your name going to be? Is it going to be Kenneth or Happ? And I said, goodbye, the one. And they said, well, when you work here, it's going to be Kenneth. 
because nicknames don't give you the gravitas necessary to uh, to manage older people. And I'm feeling, you know, I'm going the wrong way. And then and he said, and of course, you need to wear a white shirt and a tie. And I, I didn't see any productivity increase from wearing a white shirt and a tie. So I realized <laughs> I, I'm wrong. It's just the wrong place. So then they ask the question that puts you over the top, the one that's always asked in these interviews about, you know, if you were to join our organization, where do you envision you're going to be? in five years. And knowing I'm out of there, I said, well, if, if, and I'd like to underscore, if I were to join Procter & Gamble, I expect to be president in five years. And <laughs> anyway, <laughs> they offered me a job, but uh, it was actually a, a good interview. Uh, usually the interview is about, they ask you what you want, then they tell you that's what they do. And then you take the job and osmotically over time, you find that isn't what's going on at all. But this person actually told me what it was about, allowed me to self-select. Self, self and I realized that if I had these ideas that didn't sink, if I couldn't work for other people because I had too much hubris, about the only thing I could do was start my own company and try to put in insinuate the ideas that I believe to be able to make a company. And the goal was not about making the biggest company. The goal was about making the best companies and putting the ideas in there to be able to develop that, whether it was about a product that lasted for a lifetime, whether it was about triple bottom line inclusion of, of people you're dealing with, about seeing disruption and expecting it to happen. That's what I was going to base it on. And I chose the outdoors because of the background I had. It was one of the few things I knew anything about. And I went out and bought some stores uh, that it existed. So I'd have a little bit of cash flow and set about developing a brand, set about uh, creating products of our own, which did not exist, and use that as a platform. And at the time, what we were doing was basically disrupting the camping industry. We had sleeping bags and tents and packs primarily, and a little bit of funky clothing. And what I knew from this idea that we, I thought I could change the world, you know, I lived in Berkeley and Berkeley, we thought we'd change the world. But when you did that, one of the ways would be to send people deep into the wilderness. If you did that, one of the inhibitors to doing that was the weight of the gear that they carried. So we decided that we could use, we could find materials that would lighten the load significantly. We took aircraft aluminum and made tent poles and pack frames. We took parachute cloth. All of these are off the, the, the Vietnam War effort, which was ironic because we weren't supportive of that. But the parachute cloth became sleeping bags and tents and funky clothing. And we lightened the load of what people carried, and they went miles into the wilderness. They came back being better stewards of the earth, we thought. At the same time, we were we were changing the world, but we were also doing this experience. So that's pretty lengthy, but that, that got me to uh, founding a company that had the principles I wanted on the outdoors or something I liked and uh, allowed us to have a differentiation. It's really fascinating, and I, I really appreciate the fact that you were – so thoughtful and mindful about every step you took in creating North Face. It wasn't, let's just make a bunch of money selling some outdoor jackets. Like you really went granular with it. And I really appreciate that thoughtfulness. I'm curious about what you're doing today. Any projects, teaching, <clears throat> personal work? What do you, what do you have going on? Well, a bunch of random things. I mean, I've, uh, <laughs> I, I, Serve on a few boards. I'm involved in investment in a few companies. Two in particular. They're they're all 
different in certain ways, but they're all around disruption. I'm involved with a company that is uh, trying to find an alternative for existing materials that are not environmentally responsible. It's focused on initially, uh, you, they work with mycelium. Mycelium is a root structure of mushrooms, and you can make it and grow it in a lab so you don't have to deforest or whatever, and you can grow materials that can be a replacement. Now we're focused on a replacement for leather, uh, but it, it bio other biomaterials could be generated or food or pharma or whatever that you could develop from there. So it gives economic reason to protect reasons that have been deforested and protect indigenous cultures that know many of these herbs and things of what they can be used for. And we're doing expeditions into uh, into the Amazon, into Patagonia, the company's based out of Chile. So I'm focused on that. And then on, on the healthcare side, I'm working with a company out of uh, Dubai and, and Manchester, UK, that uh, does IV drip therapy and also does genetic testing to allow people to do uh, proactive, preemptive healthcare uh, so that they don't have the need for high cost healthcare when they're ill, but actually lead their life in a better way. So I'm focused on those as areas. And I, I do some consulting for companies and I, I teach at, at Holt University and I also teach at UC Berkeley and teach about disruption, teach about uh, ESG, uh, teach about sustainability and circularity and those areas. And then uh, I do some speaking in various places and, and do a few other things. But that's, you know, that's, that's kind of what I do. It's amazing. Hap. I mean, I just I'm inspired by just the, all the different things that you're doing and also how important all the things that you're focusing on are. Um, but you're you're starting a new company, your interactions on boards. You have so much exposure to different kinds of organizations and different kinds of companies. And so was curious if you could share with us what are some lessons you've learned about running organizations you know what really makes the best organizations that you've seen any lessons you can share with us yeah i i think and and these are all thoughts i don't think there's any proof of these concepts but but you know the the hiring is the most important thing you can do i, I tell people you know there's there's only one great way to motivate people, and that is to hire motivated people. Mm. You know, that, you know, if if you have people who are not motivated, none of your pay schemes and none of the you know great ideas you can insinuate in the company really resonate with them. So you spend more time at the outset trying to figure out if they're passionate and what they're passionate about. At North Face. I didn't hire anybody with business training at the outset, although 11 people went on to run other major companies, founded Mountain Hardware, ran Birkenstock, uh, you know, Patagonia's international operation in Japan and whatever. But I felt you could train those things. It's kind of the difference between leading and managing. It was trying to create leaders. Leading and management are different activities, and they require different skills. Management is about utilizing all sorts of KPIs and, and dashboards and measurement to see how performance out there. Leadership is about how you inspire, how you impassion people, how you, how you convey things with passion. So try to put both of those into an organization to be able to make it worthwhile, but start by spending time trying to figure out if people are passionate, if they really care about anything. Uh, and you, you can do that in, in a variety of interviews. You know, when you're small, you have time to interview almost everybody. It, it 
you don't have that time as it gets larger, but if you've trained the right people, they can use the same techniques. That's, um, I mean, I, I really appreciate the fact that you're looking at talent acquisition and, and the hiring and attraction of, of people to your organization. But once they get there, it's about culture. And um, we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about how to create a positive culture, you know, developing a culture that actually really operationalizes brand values or purpose that you might put on your website, but are you actually making that a reality within your culture? So looking back at your time at North Face, or even as you've, um, you know, kind of started working with other companies, what do you think are the most important aspects of developing a good company or a positive company culture? Well, there, there are many aspects and you have to do many things. But w- what I believed and, and when I started the North Face and still believe to this day and the companies I work with, consult with, advise, I do the same thing. I talk about building a brand. Now, most people immediately jump to the conclusion that's a marketing activity, you know, and it doesn't have anything to do with me. I, I don't believe that. I mean, brand is what you stand for. It's what your DNA is. And it's your values. And if if you understand those and consistently, persistently repeat those, over time, a brand is like coral. It grows imperceptibly. It expands and expands, becomes more and more unique each little step along the way until at some inflection point, it's so unique and so beautiful that there's nothing like it out there. And that's really what you want in a business. That's almost a monopoly. You know, you don't have to worry about price as a driver. You've got value as something. So, so we would spend, and I would spend a lot of times trying to figure out what we stood for. And from the outset, we identified really three keywords that were drivers for everything we did, and then asked people across the company to apply that. And the three words were simply disruption, quality, and triple bottom line. Now, as I mentioned, in terms of quality, you always develop storytelling then so that this can be expanded within your company and outside your company. Your employees can be your best salespeople if they know what they're doing. But if they're not going in the same direction, they cancel one another out. So every two years, we would meet with a long-range planning process, and we'd talk about our quantitative goals. But simultaneously, we would spend a lot of time about our qualitative goals. And we would come back to what are the three words that drive us? How do they fit there? You know, And things like quality. We put a lifetime warranty on the product. That was our story. But also in terms of the way we dealt with people, we spoke 14 languages at all times and brought languages or dialects and brought people in from all over the globe to be able to work with them. In terms of disruption, the stories we talk about were stories like the Vietnam materials that I mentioned earlier, but also we were one of the first to embrace Cortex when it came out. We believed disruption was going to continue to disrupt. And, and when our tent sales slowed down, I went to to a philosopher genius that I knew by the name of Bucky Fuller and uh, Bucky who invented geodesics and had a new math and whatever. And said, you know, our tents are slowing down. You say your structures encompass a maximum amount of space with a minimum amount of materials. Sounds like you'd be a tent. And he said, oh, for sure. And I said, well, you know, would you design it? And he said, well, unfortunately, I'm spending my time saving the world. You know, but if if you put a team together, I'll mentor the team and together we'll we'll create a tent. So we use that disruption. Some people we explain the Bucky story to, but many people don't know who Buckminster Fuller is. So it's easier sometimes to talk about or was easier to talk about the Vietnam materials. And then in terms of triple bottom line, 
basically an equal commitment to to people, to profits, and the planet. But as I mentioned earlier, uh, we'd educated all of the people. We we helped them learn how to run businesses. So that was important. And 11 of them went on to do that. In terms of our commitment to the environment, we were very strong on the environment. We were preaching. Frankly, a lot of people resisted it uh, much more even than today. But uh, when we were doing it, you know, people call us tree huggers and granola lovers and, you know, whatever. And we didn't mind that they criticized us on our environmental position, but we weren't getting our message across. Now, we tried to do things internally. We tried to make, you know, our product lasted for a lifetime. We thought that was better than one even made out of recycled materials, because if it never ended up in the landfill, you know, that was environmentally good. And, and we were trying to do that. But anyway, what we did was finally come up with a way to sell it a little bit better that everybody enjoyed around the company. And that was we created a negative award and we created what was called the ICE-9 award. And ICE-9 was, was predicated on Kurt Vonnegut's book, The Cat's Cradle. And in The Cat's Cradle, the protagonist is a scientist who has this great invention that will turn all of the water in the world into ice. Now, of course, this is going to destroy the world, but it's such a great invention, he just has to take it to his conclusion. So in the honor of Vonnegut and the, and the Cat's Cradle, we created the Ice Nine Award. And each year, we'd give it to the most environmentally destructive organization. We give it to U.S. Congress one year. Interesting how many aides they have who can write you letters telling you don't know what you're doing. But anyway, it was a way for us to get the message across. If people knew Vonnegut, they'd know we had a little bit of sense of humor, and we would do that. But we looked at our lifetime warranty. We looked at, we had expeditions we sent out, but they had to bring back more trash than they took up. And then with triple bottom line, we hired anybody. We hired gays, lesbian, transgender. We became the employee of choice. And we never had to run an ad campaign for people to come there because of the way we recognize the value of people. If you were the best, we'd hire you. 14 languages, didn't matter where you came from, didn't matter what your persuasion was. And we developed a really inclusive culture that was there. And we were able to develop that. We do storytelling. So so as I said, storytelling is about your brand, starting with your own people, and then consistently and persistently put forth. And over time, you develop this coral that becomes known as an iconic brand, such as the North Face. You know, I, I love all of this, especially the storytelling, the public speaking, uh, being able to communicate with people and and the concept of if you made something that lasted a lifetime, you don't mm -hmm. have to worry about recycling. Like literally no one is talking about something that lasts a lifetime. So I, I love the brilliance and the simplicity of, of what you're sharing. And I want to ask a question about employees. How does your work focus on making the employee experience better? Are there things that you specifically do to say, I want to make sure people are happy and they're going to stay? Is there anything specific that you do that, that people could learn from? Well, it, I think you have to constantly change what you're doing, but you have to recognize the people. You have to empower them. If, if you don't empower them, they feel like chattel. They feel like they're just working. And, and nobody really works for their pay. They take a job for the pay, but then once they have it, they sort of ingrain that that's what they're doing. Now they're working for other reasons, and you have to have to anoint those other reasons. Some is that they like the social aspect of what they're doing. Some of it is because they think the product they're producing or the service is going to change the world. You have to let them know. So we would constantly, when we were doing expeditions, we'd have people come back 
and to show slides to our employees. So they realized this product really did make a difference and that people's lives depended on how good they were and if they failed and that sort of thing. So they started feeling fairly good about that. But you know, I, I think some of it also is just recognizing and honoring the people that are doing things in the right way. And, and we did one thing, which I didn't realize how powerful it was at the time. But, you know, as I said, I like to drink beer and we would finish work and we the team would drink beer and argue about what we thought the world was you know, should be and how, it, how we'd organize it and what the company should be. And at one time we had this epiphany where we realized that we were spending a disproportionate amount of our time trying to get the subpar people up to par. And what we really need to do was spend more time on the above par people and recognize them and have others gravitate to what they were doing. So we created this funky award. And had I known it was going to last for a while, we only did it once. It was called the, the Golden Trimmer Award. And one of the most tedious jobs that we had was trimming threads at the end of something, but it was also our last quality control inspection spot. And so these people would use these trimmers and they would trim threads and they'd be looking at every seam to see if everything was done properly. So it was really critical stage, but incredibly tedious work. And if you did it for eight hours, and these were some of the better employees. So we said, how about putting together, we'll put a pegboard and I'll write some little poem at the top and we will take the, some trimmers that have been retired. We'll bronze them and we'll put them out there and we'll say, thank you, you've done a wonderful job. And anyway, so we gave it to people. As I said, I, I realized later how impactful it was because about two or three years later, I was invited along with some of the other management to one of our uh, seamstresses' home, and she just received her citizenship to the United States. And it was a big party, and I had Slavovitz and a whole bunch of drinks or whatever. But as we were at her home with all the food and whatever, I looked up, and there on her mantle of her home, of her fireplace, was this award, which we'd given three or four years before. And it was just recognizing good work for what it was and acknowledging it and focusing not necessarily on the punitive nature of how you keep telling people you're not doing well enough or, you know, crank things up, but telling people by your actions that good good work is, is what we want. Oh, I love that. And just how much employees value that when you see them care about it that much to have it on the mantle, right? It's, it's you see the power in it. Wonder if you could just share with us any like advice for leaders, advice for managers um, that you've kind of learned along the way. Any other, any other advice? Well, you know, I mentioned earlier. I don't think people work for people. I think they work for a vision, and so I think you need to spend time conveying what the vision is, so that they see what that is, and and. Don't believe just because the pyramid of the way organizational structures are, there's all the bright people are at the top and all the dumb people are at the bottom or, you know, or whatever. It's it's time, circumstances, age, and a variety of other things. Recognize the value of people and query them about how you solve problems. I mean, if, if you if you ask somebody who's working at a job for eight hours how you solve a problem, they're probably going to be better than somebody who's an MBA sitting in a an ivory tower of a company theorizing about what that job is. You know, and how many times have you heard, either directly or indirectly, somebody say, you know, that's stupid management. If they had only done this well if you ask them about it 
And, it, and they say, well, if you'd only done this, and you say, what? Well, and I'll, I'll just give you one simple example of how we did it. We were trying to increase, like everybody, the productivity. You know, how do you get more out, and what are you doing, and and whatever. And and if you say work harder, that you know, most people are working hard, so that doesn't resonate very well. And so anyway, we we called the people in, and we used it was it was challenging because we had people with a lot of languages, so we'd have to have a variety of meetings. And, and frankly, it's very difficult to be terribly inspiring when you give this joke and story and whatever, and then it's translated into four different languages, some of which you don't understand. You know, you haven't a clue if culturally, if it works, if the, if the joke goes well, if it's being told well. But we'd call people in and ask them about things. So we finally ask them, you know, you know what could we do to to make productivity better? And you know, people said, you know, what we need are some fans. You know, in in the afternoon, the, the place heats up too much, and it's hard to work. You know, fans cost us you know nine dollars and ninety nine cents at at Target or Costco or whatever. You know, so we went out and got a bunch of fans. But you know, we could talk about Maslow's theory of hierarchy of needs and a whole bunch of other things. And what they wanted were fans. If you just ask them, you'll probably do the right thing. That's a great answer. I, I'm going to uh, throw out a bonus question for you and feel free to, to respond if you like. Uh, Tessa and I teach the positive workplace at Harvard. So we have a lot of government agencies, uh, a lot of higher level organizations coming uh, with the challenges of today. And their biggest challenge, and they have not figured it out, is what do you do with the hybrid work? And I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on people managing you know, all kinds of different companies? How do you handle the you're all in the office, you're all remote, a combination. How would you how would you advise people to to handle that? Well, the first thing is to recognize hybrid is going to be the future. And as opposed to pretty soon we're all going to be back in the office. And so you develop a culture around that and recognize it. What you miss outside the office is socialization. Uh, and you also basically uh, can people can be distracted very easily. You know, if I if I'm online and you are trying to present something to me, and then you you're trying to pull up slides and you're trying to do whatever while you're doing that, I'm sitting here and I'm looking over at my phone, which is just adjacent to me, and it's ringing, and I look at it and I lose you for 20 seconds. So what you have to do is recognize that you're going to have to bring people in periodically to get together. And you're going to have to put work groups together. What's done online are usually breakout groups. But you do breakout groups not only so groups can talk about things together, but so they can socialize and find out more about them. Because there's a lot that comes from peer-to-peer -peer learning. There's a lot that comes from people appreciating what somebody else does. If I'm sure you've seen it in physical plants and buildings where, you know, somebody works on the second floor and somebody else works on the first floor, or somebody works over in building A and somebody works in building B. Every time I've seen that, the people on floor one are talking about the people on two or the people in A or, you know, the way they do things over at B because they don't know enough about them. So they're imputing motives to what they see as actions. They, they see stupidity and they attribute that to people not being very smart as opposed to a bureaucratic system that doesn't allow it. So I think what you have to do is recognize it and bring together people in and out. It's, it's, it's pulsating. You have to be able to do that. 
Now, there are many advantages that you have in terms of getting groups together online or whatever. There are many, many disadvantages. Take advantages of, as you're going forward, what you can do. But the, the benefits that are coming from AI and whatever, you know, it's going to be revolutionary. If you start looking at uh, chat GBT, if you start looking at, at DALI E, or however you pronounce it, and what it's going to do, those are tools that are going to augment what everybody's going to do and requires a use of a computer, access to digital, uh, and individuals can accomplish a lot that they couldn't before. I would say the, the key is to recognize that you've got to change the screen because, because over time, people look at a screen and it becomes almost paralyzing. Every screen is kind of the same shape, whether it's a computer, whether it's TV or whatever, and people have a tendency to think everything coming from it exactly the same. So you can change scale or whatever. If you're having classrooms in, in a, a place where you're teaching something, make your conference room, have screens that can make something 10 times larger in size so you can look at it in detail or have it interactive so that you can deal with it and, and do that. The, the second thing is to recognize that people have another life and the idea of a hybrid allows them to involve that other life but they also need to be able to break from that. They need to have times away from that. They can't constantly be on call because it's 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 like your muscles. Your muscles atrophy over time if you continue to put pressure on them. But if you intermittently put pressure on them, you know, then you get back to your original strength of what you're having. So you have to allow them to have a normal life, but you have to incorporate it. You have to bring them in periodically. You have to have reasons for people to get together that are both social and maybe business oriented to be able to do that so they can develop the social cohesiveness that makes that job enjoyable. Because frankly, if they're only online 100% of the time interacting with people, they aren't going to have the human connection that makes them feel like the workplace is something that, that emboldens them, makes them feel better. It's just a job. And we've got enough of just a job. Nobody's thinking about working for 20 years at a company any longer. You know, three or four years is there. And it's sort of self-reinforcing self that that happens if you do more online and more online. What's my connection to the job? Well, you know, I get a check every two weeks or every week. And, uh, you know, I guess that's it. You know, and, you know, and they give me an attaboy. You know, hey, that's great. Let's everybody... You know, you've got a screen with 25 people, everybody's clapping or, you know, putting thumbs up. Uh, it doesn't give you quite the same feeling of, you know, sitting down with somebody over beers and then going, how the hell did you come up with a solution to that? You know, and you start going, oh, you know. <laughs> exactly. And it brings life back to the workplace. So I think, um, Hap, I, I literally think my neck hurts from nodding yes so much throughout this entire a session we've had with you. I could not agree with you more as far as leading with that purpose, leading with that vision and those values, building that strong brand that then turns into that differentiator that you have as a company and then being able to operationalize that through your culture and through your people. So this has been such an inspirational time that we've had with you. We are so grateful for that you've taken the time to talk with us. So thank you so much. Um, and we hope that we can connect with you again in the future. Sure. Well, thank you so much. And I, I'm 
No, I was rattling on pretty fast, but there's something in there. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.